Hey everybody, welcome to episode 15 of Spoken Word with Electronics. This week we're going to solve the problem of money in our society. Sides A and B for the week will then begin a three-part serial of a piece called The Apartment, which I began in 2003 and then finished in 2019 and 2020. So there's an interesting story behind the apartment tracks, and we'll play the first two of those. But first, this spamp. This week's show is called In Praise of the Spamp. You'll find a photo of the spamp in the Boing Boing post for this week. The spamp is a clever merging of two words, spam, or a can of spam, and amp, which is an amplifier. It's a small amplifier built into a can of Spam, specifically. A electronics maker in England by the name of Spamp Man makes Spamps, and they are practice amplifiers. It's also a distortion effect, and it's primarily for use for guitar. It also has a metal clip attached, so you can wear a can of Spam as a fashion accessory. I've always loved the rounded corner rectangle shape of a can of Spam. I've been to the future and I can tell you Spam coffee is pretty good. And I was surprised by the Spam sherbet. My favorite can of food on the internet is Heinz Brains. You can look up Heinz Brains to see I'm not joking. Now, Heinz has gone on the record saying it's a hoax. Lots of companies lie. <laughs> if Heinz is being honest, it's the other companies that have spoiled it for Heinz because they all lie about their past. But if you have a can of Heinz brains laying around, uh, that can would probably make a great practice amplifier in a can too. Practice amplifiers. Now that I've listed two metal cans that can make good housings for practice amplifiers, you might be curious what a practice amplifier is, if you're unfamiliar. Practice amplifiers are small portable versions of an amplifier. A guitar itself has a very weak signal by design, and it needs to be amplified to be heard, and an amplifier can also change the tone. And practice amplifiers allow this to be a small device that you hook the guitar into and connect to a pair of headphones. Just for some clarity, in the current market, a miniature amplifier is also called a practice amplifier. But I'm referring to the first versions of these, which were technically called headphone guitar amplifiers. This allows you to play guitar without a need for a loudspeaker. It's completely quiet to anyone not connected to the headphones. The Rockman, R-O-C-K-M-A-N, was the first practice amplifier to be put on the market. It arrived in 1982 and promised to do for guitars what the Sony Walkman did for tapes. It's funny to think, uh, what should we call it? Well, they call that one the Walkman. Let's call ours the Rockman. The Rockman was a Walkman-sized black box with the words Rockman in blue lettering. 
probably uh, if you were colorblind or had any color contrast issues with your vision. You just saw a uh, black box or you didn't see the blue on it. It had an input for your guitar, a few effects controls, and a headphone output. It ran on batteries, or at least a couple versions of them did run on batteries, and all of them ran on a power plug. It was great for bad guitar players to quietly practice and jam out. Suffice it to say, a lot of kids received Rockmans as gifts from their parents. I was one of those kids. I was an annoying kid for a lot of electronic reasons and probably emotional ones as well. <laughs> and the coolest thing my dad did for both me and my brother was encourage our interests and our curiosity, especially in technology. My dad was always there to support us in technology. This started with video games, but led to computers with a modem. We had an early CompuServe account and I learned BASIC on our Atari 400 computer, stuff like that. The keyboard on an Atari 400 is really cool to look up. It was uh, just a flat pad with letters printed on it, no keys. If my dad saw either my brother or me develop any interest in something that you could perceive to be intelligent, he wanted to support that. Very cool, my dad. And for a brief while, maybe after uh, seeing Footloose or something, I got into rock and roll. And I had a very small, cheap electric guitar. Uh, just the most basic version of an electric guitar. A no-name thing that was possibly picked up, used. I want to say maybe a neighbor had a kid who'd gone off to college. They sold it at a uh, garage sale or something. That kind of electric guitar. It sounded horrible, and my playing only made it sound worse. And of course, I treasured it. Around 1984 or so, my dad saw an advertisement for the Rockman. It showed a pair of headphones with a young son in the ad playing guitar in the living room. The rest of the family is there in the ad, reading newspapers and playing board games. The headline for the ad said, Loud guitar, but only they hear it. The next day, my dad bought me a Rockman. It was clearly more for his benefit than mine, but I loved it. Probably encouraged a preference for headphones over speakers for my entire life. Thanks, Dad. There's a lot of technology and technology solutions that my father built into our home. They bought their home in 1968, and they never have moved out from it. He uh, constantly modifies it with a lot of wiring and funny, uh, I call it a robot house. I love it. There's a lot of intercoms and AV switches. That'll be a future episode describing that. So as I alluded to a moment ago, the rock man, like the Spamp, is its own play on words. Is it the Rockman or the Rockman? Hard to say, but it's a riff around the Walkman, which Sony introduced for portable cassette listening in 1979. And if you were curious about the Rockman, while the Spamp was created by Spamp Man, there is no person named Rockman to have invented the Rockman. The Rockman was instead invented by a genius inventor named Tom Schultz. Many of you know Tom by his most successful other invention, the band Boston. 
specifically the sound of those incredible sounding early Boston records. If you're interested in lo-fi recording or home recording in general, a lot of times I like to mention Boston because I think people think of home recording as a low fidelity kind of deal or a sound. But the top cresting moment other than maybe uh, those early Aphex Twin records are uh, the Boston albums. And those were recorded in the basement of Tom Schultz's uh, rented apartment in Watertown, Massachusetts. Tom Schultz was Boston's main instrumentalist. He produced and recorded their albums. He uh, am largely the architect for the band, although I'm sure that can be debated. In home recording circles, uh, Schultz is an inspiration for many musicians. If you were born in the late 1970s or 1980s, it's very likely that you were conceived to the first track from the first Boston album, the song More Than a Feeling. If your mom is named Marianne, I hate to tell you, the, uh, the odds just doubled. Check the lyrics. Tom Schultz wrote the lyrics to More Than a Feeling. And he did the guitar on that track. And if you listen to how that song is produced, listen to the studio version, you'll probably hear some interesting tape loops and other production tricks that are amazing. And during the silences, if you listen very closely, you can hear that basement. The, uh, the basement is part of the sound. I think the opening guitar is actually a guitar loop that they perfectly blend into other live guitar such a nice way to make a song. Give a close listen to the production and assembly of More Than a Feeling, and consider that the entire thing from both the song to the lyrics to the recording room itself was built by Tom Schultz. A lot to learn from Mr. Schultz. It's a fucking great song. Of course, the voice of Boston was Brad Delp. Brad Delp is as much a part of Boston as Tom Schultz and he sang those beautiful searing vocals for more than a feeling. Brad Delp has a heartbreaking end of life story. I feel very sad about that. If you look it up, you'll find a small tragedy. I won't go into detail here except to say that people are complicated. Without a doubt, the pairing of Schultz's electronics mind and Brad Delp's wonderful sensitivity and vocal gifts are not common as creative pairings, the result is we have all these great Boston records, especially from the 1970s and 1980s, to enjoy. Tom Schultz and Brad Delp are really an important and incredible part of a kind of music history. Tom Schultz is also a good example about what to do with money. The first Boston album, as I've said, was self-recorded, but the album was actually paid for by Polaroid Film. Polaroid Film was an unofficial sponsor of the record. Tom Schultz had gone to MIT, very smart guy, and they hired Tom Schultz for six years as a design engineer right out of school. And because of this job, he could afford to make his studio. A lot of life path planners would say that you buy a home with this first boost of cash. Put it in equity. Instead, he put this money, made a Polaroid, into his basement recording studio. This is a good example of what money can do for you if you don't focus on just making more money with it. I think buying a home for security is a great choice, 
but a lot of people view it as the beginning of one home leading to a next home leading to a next home and that's what you do with the money you make is you constantly invest in a bigger home I personally think you should put half of your money into savings and have a home for a goal but really buying some space in your life for a passion or something you care about is a first kind of priority you just have to be disciplined making a Boston album with the money is not a bad decision but let's imagine an alternate version of Tom Schultz one where Tom just wants a bigger and bigger house Tom Schultz is instead only wanting to make more money and he's following the path most people do when they start acquiring wealth wealth makes more wealth uh, you know this is called following society's expectations they're never going to judge you for it they'll admire you for it oh look at Tom's big house yeah and they're making a bigger house Tom's doing great versus uh, oh Tom came into some money but he's just this goofball he's uh, making a home studio down in the basement oh they all laugh at Tom following society's expectations means no home studio and in Tom Schultz example many of you wouldn't be born today because that Boston album wouldn't have been made that's how serious this is you would be dead if Tom Schultz wanted to be rich even worse you might exist but it might be a mutated version of yourself I'll explain without a basement recording space some A&R rep might have forced Boston into a studio and not allowed for that beautiful organic album to have been made free of any corporate control or feedback it would have been instead a, a terrible 1970s studio version of the first Boston record and it would have had no baby making magic at all maybe a worse child would exist actually the worst version of you nothing like you at all the awful shrill sound of a studio production would have depressed your origins as a sperm the odds of you being who you are is also a bizarrely mind-breaking thought experiment to realize that you just in being born are a one in 200 million chance of being the winning sperm competing with the other sperms to get to the egg Let's say that you're made particularly enthusiastic with your sperm ears of the home-recorded Boston album. But that doesn't exist, and you have no zip to that corporate crap of a studio-produced Boston record. Instead, a more sociopathic spermatozoa that lacks your deep sensitivity pushes you aside and wins the race to the egg. We need that home recorded Boston album to exist. This is how serious Tom Schultz choosing to not take the money is. Tom Schultz has a lot of good credits to his life. He's an interesting guy to look up, including an empathy for animals and other ethical choices. I think you could say Tom has done life the right way and he has been rewarded for it, I think. He got a job and he used it the right way to fund his big idea of making a home recording masterpiece of a studio. I think Tom probably really knows and knew what he needed to do or wanted to do. A lot of passion is just listening to what you want to do. 
and then building on it. So this was successful, and then Boston became Tom Schultz's job. And he used the band money to fund his interest in becoming an electronics maker. And his big hit would be The Rockman. Like the Spamp, The Rockman allowed you to plug in your guitar and have an amplifier through headphones. Of course, husbands and wives both played bad guitar, as well as their kids, and I'm sure a few Rockmans were bought to politely quiet a spouse. In the same way, with loud basement guitarists in particular, I am certain the Rockman saved many marriages. Perhaps these marriages were the same connections that were started through the first Boston album. Bring them together and keep them together, Tom. Tender person, Tom Schultz. He thinks about the full experience. So how much do uh, practice amplifiers cost? Practice amplifiers will run you anywhere from $30 to $200, depending on what features you want or what sound quality you'd like. And it's a shame we still need money to buy anything like this. You'd think by now with so many other technologies making other parts of society obsolete, money would change into something smarter and stop being money. We have a lot of change possible to be made right now, and dissolving money as an authority in our world is something possible. I have two proposals to redefine money. One is the point system, and the other is saliva. The point system. The point system. This is an amazing moment in time because we're literally seeing the flaw in money as a concept. Before money, people prepared for seasons when they wouldn't have necessary things to survive. They'd stockpile food, take care of other sorts of needs. I suppose you could say even in capitalism, we are supposed to save. The common suggestion is to have six months of expenses in your savings, which you never touch. If you want to invest money or have fun with money, you do so only after this six months is saved. Obviously, people live paycheck to paycheck or don't make enough money to save six months, and six months of somebody's salary is different than six months of somebody else's. But the severe panic that overtook America and other parts of the world in less than a month because money was stopped surely indicates that we do not prepare. So COVID has called our bluff. Many few of us saved to prepare for this. We all overspent every paycheck. Most of us went into this pandemic with debt. Many of us use credit cards incorrectly as small loans or instant gratification cards. You know, credit cards don't really cost you any money if you pay the balance every month, but who does that? Businesses are built on debt, and as such, businesses are really fragile, and they pay the salaries and paychecks for other people. None of this is anybody's fault. It is not our fault because this is the design of capitalism. I like living in a capitalist world, but I also wouldn't mind it being gone with some better system that still gives me things. A lot of people say the only alternative is some sort of totalitarian or state-controlled socialist or communist environment. I don't agree. I've got a couple ideas here. Capitalism is like a spinning gear. 
it can never stop or it breaks. And then terms like restarting the economy start entering into our conversation, like it's some sort of turbine. But really, when could it ever have a reason to stop, like some bacteria or viral infection taking over the world, right? The last four months have nearly destroyed the country just because we need to constantly feed the money system. As organisms, we don't need to leave the house as much as we do for a job. I'm sure in communism, no matter how terrible, they probably would have told you to stop going to your state assigned job for a few months. I wouldn't want communism, the really scary version of it. So the last four months have nearly destroyed the country, and that's just because we constantly need to feed money into the system and, and take money from it. I suppose that our most base desire, a lot of us would like a lot of this money. I'm not against money. I, uh, I love spending it myself. Focused purchases towards a happy life are completely necessary, and the mood uplift from buying yourself something when you're sad is a pretty good feeling. If you cook food, you'll want a great kitchen. If you like to drive, you want a pretty good, fantastic car. Clothing, vacations, shelter, food, these things all cost money. Music, video games, entertainment, carnival rides, singing telegrams, balloons, bowling, archery, roller coasters, drugs, booze, sex, and books. All these things cost money. All these things should be pursued, and with a heavy appetite, too. I'm not arguing for being chased, and I know that the world has a lot of pleasures, and we should seek them all out. I'm arguing against anyone wanting more than that. I'm talking about wealth and fortunes, more money than you or your family or your children and their children will ever need. It's this paranoid acquisition of wealth that is destroying the world. Unfortunately, there's no value in more money than you need. Despite our fantasies, money is worthless. If anything, it amplifies sadness. I've known a few people in my life who've gotten rich. Some of them are very good friends and are still very good friends. Though their ability to make new friends once making a lot of money is heavily compromised, they don't trust new people. I've yet to see money make anyone happy. In fact, if money is your goal, you'll find your brain won't be a good companion on this journey. As I said, I love purchases and I love possessions. I'm not trying to be John Lennon here, trying to wish any of that away. John Lennon realized how unhappy money makes him. That's why not having money became a fantasy. I'm not against money for what it can get you. I understand it's our agreed upon exchange system. But that's its own funny pun, isn't it? A greed. We have a greed, so money is our system. Greed. It's our agreed upon exchange system. If you're still planning your course through life, I'm hoping you'll consider what I'm going to present here as an idea. We put so much respect on money. We give it such expensive names. Gold, cash, fortune. I think that's part of the problem is we give it such a nice title. 
It's such a good noun, money. I like calling money simply numbers. I save a certain amount of numbers. I spend some of those numbers. I presently am acquiring numbers to retire. I suppose you could say numbers need to be called something. And as long as we're in a good era of recodifying social terms like master-slave and pronouns, like he, her, and they, then I'm for redefining what we call money. To make it less powerful, I'd like to just call money points. <laughs>